following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning to everyone. So glad to be together. I won't make you all like respond to me like with a big good morning, but you can sprinkle in when you want to. It's fine. It is good to be together, man, on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, to again celebrate the resurrection. That is what we join together again, that we don't serve a dead, old, ancient ruler in some sort of religious form, but one who is alive at the right hand of the Father. So we praise and glorify him together today. So it's good to be together. Um, I want to thank Kevin Marshman. He was in the first service, but I just want you guys to hear me say it as well to him, that it is a blessing to be able to have in our own body of, of Christ here at Cornerstone those that can preach the word faithfully. I'm very thankful for Kevin to be able to lead us through um, this section of Scripture in the Gospels. And man, I was so convicted um, and, and encouraged to worship like the sinful woman of the city who understood her place properly to worship at the feet of Jesus and give all that she had. I found in myself very often that I'm the Pharisee in the story, the one who gets it all right, the one who's not paying attention to the most important thing in the room, but more attention to my own self and getting the things right. May we all then be like that woman who worshiped Christ with all that she had and we understand the object of our worship rightly. Let's go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 4 today. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 4. It's so going to begin together. We're going to start by reading 25 through 31. And what I'm going to read here together before we pray is actually the cycle that we see happening over and over again throughout the Old Testament where we see people obey God, grow close, then break away by their own disobedience and what God will do about that. So as we do so, I, I, it's apropos for us to kind of get set towards where we're going in the prophets. But I think it's helpful for us to start here this morning. So Deuteronomy 4, let me read 25 to 31 and then we will pray. This is God's word. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for the opportunity to, for each of us to hold open, whether it's on our phone or in our laps in a leather-bound case, the Bible, the truth of God's word that speaks to us, the truth of who we are and who you are. We thank you, dear Lord, for your grace. and We ask this morning that you would teach us through your word. I pray for power for each of us, for me as I open up the word and speak it, 
but as each of us listen, would we ever be changed by your Holy Spirit that would be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you will do. You are faithful in the midst of our unfaithfulness, in the midst of our even sometimes being bored of what we're doing. God, would you arrest us with the love and perfections of Jesus Christ so that we might have that which honors you come from our lives. Thank you for your grace. We pray for your blessing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, most of you in this room at least know something about contracts, agreements, or covenants. If you own a home, probably you sign a contract of some sort. Um, if you have spent any time in the world, you probably had to sign some sort of agreement, and you may know even something about covenants. If you, learned a, if you live in a specific neighborhood, you may have, with the HOA, had to sign off on a bunch of rules and the covenant rules that you're going to keep in your neighborhood. Of course, some of those have to do with keeping your grass mowed properly. Some of those have to do with not having bikes out in front of your house. I got nailed on that one. Um, I have four kids. Give me a break, all right? Like, th you sign up for these covenants. You say, okay, I'm going to keep these rules, and we'll make sure that we all have a better house front. We'll make sure we don't change the, the color of the fence to something wild. And we, we're trying to keep these rules so that we can have the benefits of having a commonality and making at least, hopefully, our, our property value sustained or maybe even go up by making it look nice. Um, there are other things that we see uh, throughout our own situation here. I'm going to discuss this in a minute. Um, th th we've seen other places where covenants and contracts play themselves out for all kinds of different benefits. But along with those contracts, if you break the contract or the covenant, there are penalties. We understand that. When we talk about these, you can see some things that will come along, and if they keep them, you'll get the benefits that you signed up to. Roger Moore, who was a Bond actor, a James Bond actor back in the 70s, I don't claim to know him or who he was, but I did read about him. James Bond actor, he went to sign his next contract, and he required that in order to sign on to the next 007 movie in the 70s, that he would get unlimited Monte Cristo cigars written into his first contract. So all the time that he was doing this movie, I mean, he did the most James Bond thing I guess you could do, and he had an unlimited supply of Monte Cristo cigars. Uh, maybe a little more recent, Samuel Jackson, one of the most famous actors in our time here, he loves golf. And he became so famous and so sought after that he wrote it into all of his contracts that if he did what he was supposed to do and do this, he would get two days every week to play golf while they're on set. So he would be able, if he did his job and he acted the movie, each week along that they would take this time, the, the thing that he would get, the benefit he would get if he did his job, he would be able to golf twice a week. He had that written right into his contract. And that was the agreement that they set. Um, it happens, of course, you know, in sports too. Some of us have heard of some absolutely ridiculous sign-on bonuses that if the, uh, the players will keep their behavior straight, if they'll keep away from drugs, if they produce, they do the right things, they'll get these big sign-on bonuses. Um, there was quite a mustache craze in the 1970s. Uh, I, I, I wasn't around for it, but I have read about it again. I've seen some of the, the things. I love it. Uh, I wish I could do well, but I can't. Charlie Finley, who's the owner of the Oakland, Oakland Athletics, he caught on to this, and he wanted to turn it into something good and like attract attention. So he went to all of his staff and made them all grow out beards and who could do the best facial hair. And a man named Raleigh Fingers, um, he was a closer, a pitcher, he, uh, he won in part of his contract was 300 bucks to keep the stash and 100, back, 100 bucks for wax to make sure it had that handlebar look to it. It became kind of a signature along the way, but basically, if he kept the stash going, he got the, the 400 bucks. That was the way it worked out. So it worked out well for him right into his contract. Um, 
in some more recent era baseball. I don't know if you know the name Kurt Schilling, but uh, a pitcher who I watched play on the Phillies, loved watching him. He eventually went to the Red Sox. By the end of his career, he's doing great work, but he's also getting pretty heavy. So the Red Sox put it into his contract that they will award him up to $2 million in incentives to keep his weigh-ins proper six different times throughout the year. So it's written in his contract. If you just keep his, you know, keep his weight at the proper spot all along the way, he's going to make up to $2 million in incentives on top of what he already makes and what he's playing baseball. So uh, I'm just trying to say that some of these contracts can come with some excellent benefits. But as you know, there's also penalties. If you don't follow through on the contract or you do something against what you're supposed to do, there's a penalty. Now, for us, that might seem small, but it's, it gets exacerbated when you talk about big money, right? You may have heard of the baseball player A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. Back in 2013, he missed a game. I'm um, sorry, missed a, a day at work, as it were, and it was fined $150,000. I mean, that's, I guess, a small change to him, but that's nothing to, you know, to sneeze at as far as I'm concerned. Um, that was quite a bit of money. So if you're A-Rod, you miss a day at work, you lose $150,000. Um, according to the Bleacher Report, it's a different thing. You may know this name. Dennis Rodman was constantly having problems with his behavior, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but when he played for the Chicago Bulls in 97, he was docked $25,000 and suspended 11 games following an incident in which he kicked a cameraman in the groin. Um, and then an additional 50000 later on for insulting Mormons during the 1997 NBA Finals against the Utah Jazz. So the point here is if you kick a cameraman and insult religious groups in public, you lose game time, you lose over a million dollars in salary for your games that you've missed, $75,000 worth of fines in that year. My point is, in these contracts and agreement, there are both benefits that you get and there are also penalties that you'll get depending on the way that you treat this agreement. If you're going to do what you said you were going to do. Along with this come stipulations, requirements that you have to live up to your end of the, of the bargain, of the agreement. We understand how agreements work. Many of us are a part of some of these ones. Not quite like what we just talked about in these ways, but we all understand them. When God redeemed his people at Mount Sinai, when they came out of Egypt, he took them to this mountain, or he calls it Horeb as well, and he takes them, and here he shows them something very important. He shows them his glory on the mountain. And what he does is enter into a relationship with them, a covenant relationship, an agreement, as it were, a contract. But again, the word that he uses is even more powerful than that, a covenant agreement. In short, he takes them up there to this mountain to enter into covenant with them. He calls them to be his people. Throughout Scripture, this is illustrated through the example of like father and son, the relationship. We also see it between husband and wife, that close relationship and that covenant union. But always it refers to a gracious relationship bestowed on people, expecting them to live according to this relationship. So Horeb, or Mount Sinai, is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and told them to live according to these commandments. And ultimately, where he made his people, Israel, according to the covenant, follow him. Brought them into this incredible relationship of blessing and unity underneath this relationship they found in the covenant. God swears by himself, and even calls nature, as we read in Deuteronomy 4, to account, to witness what's going on, that he would have to act this way to his people, and that they also must act a certain way to their God. It's spoken, it's written down, it's explained, and then here at the mountain, it is confirmed with the people, this covenant. 
It's an incredibly important time period, an event in the life of Israel. Up to this point, there were incredible promises made, but nothing in the detail and the scope and the blessings that are spelled out here at Sinai. And the whole Pentateuch, the law and the narrative, makes it clear that God expects from his people 100% loyalty. That it's not okay to have 95% and then the last 5% you can kind of you know, divvy out to a couple other places that you want your loyalty to go. It's not about a majority. It's about 100% loyalty to him and him alone. Nowhere is this more clearly laid out than in Leviticus 26 that if you obey the covenant, there will be blessing. As we talked about contracts, if you disobey, there will be discipline, punishment, and curses. So I want you to go ahead and take a look at Leviticus 26 together. Um, we're going to read only a few verses here, but I want you to see the immensity of what he is spelling out here. This is worth your time to go back through and look at each and every blessing he talks about or each and every uh, punishment he talks about. I'm going to kind of recap it here for us. In the first 13 verses of chapter 26, you have a clear list of the blessings for those who will obey the covenant, for those who will walk in Yahweh's statutes and do his commandments. These blessings include things like life, health, prosperity, even agricultural abundance. We're talking about rains and the, and the ground producing fruits. He talks about the blessing of respect among nations and even safety and security. And the greatest of all of these blessings is that Yahweh promises that he will be their God and that Israel will be his people. This is an immense blessing. But then in the next 26 verses, verses 14 through 39, you have a clear list of punishment and discipline if the covenant is disobeyed. This punishment includes things like death, disease, famine, drought, uh, danger from both animals and militaries who will attack, destruction, exile, destitution, and even disgrace among all the people that are around them. And you would think that those are the two sides. We talked about the penalties and we talked about those things that were the benefits. But here we have something else. I would think that that's the way that Leviticus 26 would end as though now the one side was, if you'll do these things, I will be your God. But if you don't do these things, I won't be your God. But that's not the way Leviticus 26 ends. In verse 40, there's this turn. After he's talking about all the benefits, then all of these curses, and you, you're, you're almost in the bottom of the depths of despair, verse 40 has this turn where it's kind of saying, if you confess your iniquity that you've committed against me, if you are humbled and if you will make amends for your iniquity, then I will remember my covenant and I will not destroy you utterly. It's immense grace at the end of this list. But we should ask the question then, why? Why would he do this? Well, it's based on the character of God and the fact that he has entered into covenant with his people. He will not be unfaithful. He is the Lord their God. He is the faithful one. And in a sense, he cannot fail. And yet he will hold them to this. Let me read verses 44 and 45. This is how he responds here. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake, the, I'm sorry, I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt into the sight of the nations, that I may, might be their God. I am the Lord. He grounds it all in his own incredible character. 
Now, some of you, as we come to this section, uh, I'm sorry, today, as we're coming to this sermon, may have thought that we're ready to jump into Obadiah. And the answer is yes, we are going to do that, but not quite yet. There's some first things that we kind of need to set up before we get to the book. What I'd like to do before we get to Obadiah is first just talk about this completely different side of Scripture called the prophets. Talk about them for a moment to help us understand a little bit. We will get to Obadiah and an introduction to that next week. But I want to take some time to consider how to switch from Paul all the way to these guys and the prophets hundreds of years before. And when I say prophets, I mean the Old Testament books of the Bible with all those funny names that we kind of think of the names that you would give your kids if you were Amish. Those are all the ones we're talking about right now. There are 16 different prophets. Some are major, some are minor. Now, that does not mean that some were more important and others were less important. It's actually just kind of a short form to help us understand that some are very large and that some are quite small. The very large ones, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are the large ones, or the major prophets. The minor prophets are also called the Twelve. They're much smaller. The reason they're called the Twelve is because all 12 of them could actually be put into one scroll. So when you would open that scroll, it was called the Twelve because all minor prophets, all 12 of them, would actually fit on that one. So those are the ones called Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So these are real names. They're real prophets. They really wrote. But if, we, uh, if we're talking about them, and that's what we're coming to today, why did I start us off in Deuteronomy 4? And all this conversation in Leviticus 26, and all this conversation about covenant between God and his people. Why am I making such a big deal about this covenant then if we're talking about the Old Testament prophetic books? Well, it's because, if we're all quite honest, it's difficult for us to read the prophets. It's difficult for us to get into it and open up the book of Ezekiel and know exactly what's going on. If we're honest, it's a struggle to know where we are and what's happening and what he's referring to. And sometimes we can open up a book and be like, I must not be a Christian. I have no idea what he's talking about. I want us today to kind of be able to place ourselves and see what we're interacting with. What are the prophets about? Who are they? Of course, one of the problems that we struggle with is that it's just not a normal type of literature that we're used to. It's full of poetry and songs. It has apocalyptic literature. And of course, we have prophecy, and we're not sure which things he's referring to. So we're not used to the literature in that way. Also, we, we don't necessarily know the guys that are writing. We may know the name because we've memorized the books of the Bible, but we don't exactly know who they are. And that makes it very difficult to kind of figure out. Maybe we know Daniel. We know Daniel's in the lion's den. We don't know much else about that and what else is going on. Maybe Jonah. But again, if you think about both of those, those are rooted in a narrative. That's why you and I know those so well. But these other ones may seem obscure to us. Also, because we don't know exactly who they are or you know, what we're reading, we're not really sure where these books ought to be placed in Scripture, like in the story. Like we're not quite sure when they come. We know that when we open our Bibles, uh, the prophets kind of come after the wisdom books, right? After Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and then we get into all these prophets. We understand that, but if I'm honest, sometimes I think that must mean that they're after that, that, that these are written at that point, and then these prophets are written after that. So, so I'm bringing up the point that I don't know that we know exactly when these things are written or how to find a place for them within our story of Israel and God's people. 
we want to understand a timeline. It's, it's okay. We're a chronological people in the West. We, we really want to understand our history. We understand where this all fits. And that's okay. It didn't, doesn't mean that that's how they thought in this way, but it does help us to say, okay, then let's put this in context. In context. What I want us to do then is to kind of understand that. If we're not thinking clearly, we're not paying attention, you can easily get confused where we're at in the story. So for those reasons, I just want to take a few minutes today and kind of give you an introduction to the prophets. Ask a few questions, try to answer some of these things and help us. Next week, again, like I said, we'll work on Obadiah's introduction. Understand that as well. But for today, we're going to pull back, go from first century Paul in Ephesians all the way back to, you know, we're talking about like the fourth through the eighth century B.C. We're talking about all the way back there and what, what were they're talking about. Um, I'll do this by trying to answer a couple of questions. That's my kind of my goal today. I'm going to answer, ask a few questions and then answer them, and then we'll be done. Uh, this will not be a conclusive presentation, of course, but it should give us most of the pieces that we need that it would encourage us to read the prophets with understanding and really try to place them and not to say to ourselves, well, they're the prophets. They're too hard for me to understand. I'm just going to read reading the Gospels again, or I'm just going to read the New Testament. It's a lot easier. No, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for our instruction. So I'd encourage us to understand and to do the work so that we will actually gain from reading these prophets. So I'll ask the first question. When? When are these prophets written? Well, again, the prophets are written over a course of a couple hundred years. Um, we're talking about a time spanning from the 4th through the 8th century B.C., that's not helpful for most of us. Uh, maybe we don't know our history very well. Exactly, it's made us be like, to, to me, it's just numbers. I'm not exactly sure when that was. It sounds like a long time ago. So instead, let me try to give you as part then what we're, how we find ourselves in the story. After Solomon dies, Israel and Judah are plunged into an ongoing civil war. You know this, there's a divide. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. They become very much on their own nations. And they live, they have different places of worship, and they kind of keep to themselves in those ways. Sometimes they're even fighting one another, but they're no longer one united front. And in the midst of that breakdown of unity, we also have a problem of spirituality breakdown as well. Wickedness sets in, uh, and of course you have a completely different place than God told them to worship that one of the, one of the tribes are worshiping at. And we have a massive breakdown in continual faithfulness to God. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see that Israel seems to get out in front. The northern tribes, they kind of get out in front as far as wickedness is concerned. They're far worse. Their kings are terrible. They do a lot of things to bring shame and disgrace to God's name. But as we read along, Judah's better, but Judah has the same problems. They're also wicked, and they eventually end up kind of plunging into all the same sin that the northern tribes, Israel does as well. Some of these prophets spoke all the way back in the 8th century, um, they would be the ones that are actually prophesying to Israel before they go into exile. We're talking about roughly around 722 B.C. is when they actually went into exile in, in Assyria. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Other prophets appear to have written to Judah before their impending exile to Babylon in 580, 587 B.C. So we're talking about quite a long time between those, but all along the way between those, we're seeing prophets who are talking to Judah saying, this is where you're going, stop turn around, getting a word from the Lord to not do this. And then there are prophecies that are given while Judah is in exile in Babylon, that they're living amongst these people. 
And then we even have some more that are actually after the exile as they return, as they are reconstituted. The point that I want to make here is that these 16 men prophesied to Israel over hundreds of years, almost all of them falling within the narrative of First and Second Kings. So if you want to know where you should be reading alongside, it's First and Second Kings. That will kind of be the, the context for you as you read the prophets. So kind of some of the stuff that's going on, the, some of the crazy stories you read in First and Second Kings, of the, some of the heights of good worship and reform, some of the depths of wickedness and what they do, this will be the context for helping us to understand what the prophets are writing or speaking into. So here's the narrative. Israel steadily slides toward disaster and exile as we work our way through First and Second Kings. And then finally, by chapter 17, again around 722 B.C., Assyria, not Syria, Assyria invades the northern kingdom and deports all the Israelites, that northern kingdom, to Assyria, marking really the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, if you know anything about God's promises and plans, this is a big deal. And it should cause us to say, whoa, what happened? What, 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 does, that, what does that mean? If this has happened, what does that mean for Israel at all? In 2 Kings, um, the narrator pauses at chapter 17, and he kind of makes us ask that question. And we get to verses 7 through 23, and he begins to answer that question. This is the punishment against idolatrous people who have been warned over and over again. The Lord removed Israel from his presence because he could not stomach their sin any longer. He had for hundreds of years and been patient, but he could no longer. Even in uh, that chapter, in verse 19, though, we learn that Judah is actually not that far behind. He literally says that in his response, saying that that's going to happen somewhat pretty closely behind. Wickedness builds up in the reign of Manasseh, uh, who's Hezekiah's successor. Hezekiah, if you remember that name, is actually a real king. He was a, he was a good king. He, by faith and trusting God, wasn't perfect, but by faith and trusting God, he staves off the Assyrian uh, captivity and instead is able to kind of hold out for a bit longer. Manasseh is a wicked king, brings him even more destruction and more sin. So now we're not looking good again. Then Manasseh has his grandson, Josiah, the young king, if you remember this boy. He reads the law and is changed and puts all these reforms in place for righteousness' sake, good things. Judah, though, it's a little too late. It's too little, too late for Judah. Um, they're deeply entrenched in idolatry and old habits truly, just, they just die hard. During Zedekiah's reign then, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom and sets fire to the temple and the king's palace. Jerusalem is reduced to ruins and most of Judah, their people, are exiled to Babylon around 586 BC. If you want to read it, that's 2 Kings 25. Yahweh, therefore, has used these wicked kingdoms, these superpowers, as his instruments of judgment and exile for his people, that they would be punished according to his word. The questions that was asked then in 2 Kings 17, now, we're, now we have like big, big questions because the northern kingdom, gone. The southern kingdom, gone in Babylon now. What is God doing? All of this is the background then of the prophets. This is when they're writing. From the beginning before they're ever gone there to the midst of when they're waiting for the second group to go to Babylon, even to the point where they're in exile and even after exile. This is when the prophets are writing. The next question I want to ask, so that's kind of like the context to set it up for us. The next question is, what is a prophet? We're talking about this thing. What, what is a prophet? 
It should be pretty simple, and many of you can probably guess. It's a spokesperson. It's one who speaks, and their primary function is to speak for God to their own contemporaries, to Israel. They were, in a sense, a mouthpiece of God. Now, in some sense, if I should just think about this for a minute, this is, I realize in this sermon, I'm doing so many different things, so I, I appreciate your patience here. There's a lot going on, but I do think it's for your good, and I think it's going to be helpful. So let me just say something else. In one sense, prophecy given to God's people can be more than just speech. It is not only in the prophets that we get prophecy. You know this intuitively in a sense when you really think about it. Think about the Red Sea and all that that represented and meant. Think about the brazen serpent lifted up. Think about the Aaronic or the, or the, um, the, the, the Aaron, the, the group of Aaron's uh, priests, the priesthood of Aaron, I'm sorry, or the tabernacle itself, what that meant for his people, what that said about who God was, and what it said about him being with his people. As Christians, with even more revelation, we understand that each of these things tell us something about God and his will for humanity. Many of his prophecies find their explanation and fulfillment when we come and see the Messiah and all that he does and will do and says. Now that's true. That's not exactly what we're talking about here this morning. I just want to get that out there to see that, that that is prophecy as well. Much of the Old Testament constitutes prophecy, but in a narrower sense, we're talking about the writings or speeches of those specifically who were chosen and anointed by God to communicate his will to his people, those that would have the title prophets. In the historical books of the Bible, we find uh, many such men, Nathan, Nehijah, uh, Elijah and Elisha, many others who came in in the midst of crisis and were actually able to speak God's word to his people. We don't have a lot of that communication. We get some of it, but not all of it. But there are others, get this, whom the Holy Spirit inspired to not only speak it, but also to record it, to write it, and to commit their messages to writing in some way, whose revelation of God contained information that was not relevant only for that time period, but good night for all of the future of God's people. We sit here and read these prophets. It's amazing. It was for them, but it is also for us. These are the prophets that we're speaking of today. So it's important for us to remember as we get going too, because there's probably a lot of us who when we think prophecy, we think a modern day prophecy and this is what it means. We usually think about it means like predicting the future. Uh, there's part of it that's right, uh, kind of the, the thing that helps me remember is it's true that a prophet sometimes foretells God's truth, but it's also true that he tells forth God's truth. It's true that you foretell. In other words, that's like the idea of prediction or telling something that's going to happen, but it's also and profoundly more true that what that person does is tell forth the truth of God. When you read all of these prophets, there is certainly some of this prediction that's going to go on but there's far more of the telling forth of God's truth and who he is and what that he wants them to know. So that's kind of an idea of, uh, of what's going on. They are literally a mouthpiece for God, transmitting God's truth to humanity. This leads us then to what I believe is probably one of the most important questions for us. Why did the prophets speak? What, what was the purpose? Like what were the prophets supposed to be doing to God's people? What was their job? Like, how could they know if they did the right thing or not? Well, it seemed as though the prophets really had four main functions. You don't have to write them down. It's okay. But I just want to go through them. The first one is that they were to call God's people 
to, to, I'm sorry, to trust only in their covenant God, Yahweh. They're constantly calling them back to that. The second one is that they were to, con- to give Israel future hope, to encourage them. The third thing is that they were also, here we go, to foretell future events. They did this. They told Israel what would happen. And when they did, they made known God's will, which would eventually lead, get this, to the verification of fulfilled prophecies. This is very, very important because what it does is it sets up the opportunity for Christ to come and fulfill over and over and over again all that God said would happen through these prophets. That means that all the prophets said, not just the parts about Christ, all the prophets said is true. It's verified that it's authoritative word of God. If you remember, that's actually how someone was to tell whether or not someone was a prophet or not, whether they were a prophet of their own or a prophet of God. If their word checked out according to what God had said would happen, it, it would come true, and that would be to verify it. So we have that that is actually true. The fourth thing, though, and this is where I'll spend a big ch- chunk of time, the prophets were covenant enforcement mediators. All right, if you're sleeping up until now, I want you to listen to this part. All right, The prophets were covenant enforcement mediators. This might help you understand why we began in Deuteronomy 4, in Leviticus 26. That's the law. That's the covenant that showed us the rules and what would come if you disobey and what would come if you obey. These guys are announcers of the law, blessings for obedience, punishment for disobedience. These guys weren't random speakers that kind of were like, any word from the Lord lately? Yeah, he wants to check in on us. It wasn't like that. He was actually going back and showing them his will in modern times according to the covenant that he had given to them. In a sense, then, the prophets aren't doing anything original. None of their work is like just coming up with new prophecy and, and new revelation. They're going back and saying, hey, we're not living according to what God told us to do. Let me give you this word. Now, that being said, the prophets are very flowery. They use pictures and illustrations and songs and poetry. And they speak to people even through some of their own illustrations. Some of the stuff they do is kind of crazy. But it's to get up the attention of the people And then when they speak the truth, they know exactly what they're talking about back in the law. The prophets are covenant enforcement mediators, speaking in such a way that calls people to understand their own actions in light of what Yahweh had called them to do back at Sinai when he made them his people. These prophets confronted people. I mean, they are uncomfortable. If you want to make people squirm, have them read all the prophets. They, they confronted people. They exposed their unfaithfulness, both the blatant wickedness, but also that stuff that seemed technically like religiosity and goodness, but on the side, they're doing all kinds of other stuff, not taking care of people, not actually having the heart of the law, but bringing their offers of worship to the Lord and keeping feasts in these ways. If the prophets were speaking to us today, I think they'd call us out for church attendance, and giving, we're good at that. But then the rest of our lives when we serve ourselves, they'd probably pick us apart left and right. The problem is here that the prophets don't just call us to religion. They call us to true covenant faithfulness to God from the heart in all areas of life. In that way, they're much like Jesus. He, when, when he explains that the one, on the one hand, that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
tying those things together carefully. On the other hand, as he talks about Mary, as she sits at Jesus' feet and worships, tells her that she has chosen the better thing over the much serving, understanding that there must be a connection between the heart and the actions. The prophets get right to the point that we've talked about in the last couple weeks, that God knows the heart, that God sees all of our actions, that he knows our innermost heart desire, and he will judge us accordingly. The prophets aren't concerned with external worship offerings, while the rest of the life we choose to do what we want to, serve the other idols, not acting as though that who have actually been bound to God by the blood of Jesus. So the prophets make the point that James does also, faith without works is dead. So I'll just ask you then, kind of midway here, how do you respond when you hear these words? What, what do you think about that? Again, this, we're going to find out this is not only for national Israel, corporate Israel. We're understanding that these words are for us to understand. Not in every way, I understand that, but they are calling us to 100% loyalty to God and God alone. So brothers and sisters, this is not a new message. You've heard me speak this one before from the scriptures. You and I, by God's grace, must pursue living lives of integrity, where our inner desires from the heart match our outer actions of obedience to Christ. The, 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 the prophets, therefore, are calling us to obey the law from the heart. That's what they're calling us to. And just as a note, if we were, if we look now back at Israel, if we were expecting um, merciless authoritarians who nailed it every time and got the justice all right, we are going to be very disappointed with God and his prophets for not being timely. What I mean is that God is patient over and over and over. You know the story. Israel over and over and over again disobeys God. And God tries to get, and, and does sometimes, gets their attention. Amos speaks of this. He speaks of that he uses famine to get their attention. He uses withholding rain and, and making the ground like bronze. He, he, he uses locusts to devour all their crops to try to get their attention. He uses pestilence and war to try to get their attention and say, turn from your wickedness. He has given these punishments. All of these things are meant to arrest their attention, to call them back to obedience to the covenant before it is too late. It's a call both to the nation as a whole and to the individuals that they might repent and experience God's forgiveness. But you know the story. Eventually, even after all of God's kind warnings, God's people do not repent. They do not change. They continue and bring their ultimate judgment upon themselves. Exile. They are deported, Israel to Assyria and Judah to Babylon. Then the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, uh, they, they, what come, comes of them, they, they never return to the land at all. For as much as we understand for all intents and purposes, they're erased from history. They're assimilated into their captor's nation. It's awful. The covenant has been broken, broken beyond repair seemingly. But as grim as it is, and it is certainly grim, the prophets give us hope. They're this beautiful compendium of judgment and salvation, of terror and call to repentance and hope that God will fulfill his covenant. Through the prophets, God announces that he will put in place a new covenant in which not only he would be faithful, but his people will be faithful too. 
The prophets announced various ways in which God would act to heal his faithless people and bring his overall plan of restoration to the broken creation and bring that to fulfillment. In these writings and oracles, the prophets speak of destruction and woe, but also of hope and salvation. Uh, Again, they're this incredible thing of oracles concerning judgment and salvation together, sometimes seemingly from one verse to the next. And in these writings, we have this very plainly. One author reminds us then that in the midst of this destruction, in the midst of all that's going on, the punishment they're experiencing, that it only makes sense as the prophets speak hope to them. He says this, Without these words, the Israelites would not have maintained their sense of God's claim on them as his own people. In exile, Israel was to learn that its God was far more than just the house of God. It was far more even than just the nation in a sense. This God was not to be beat by his people's sin. He was not conquered because his people went into exile. But again, the question for us is how? What is he going to do then? This is, again, this, is this, this wonderful drama that we're, we're seeing happen in front of our eyes. How will God make it right? I'm going to switch to one last question then. Who do the prophets write to? Uh, you may think you know the answer. And you're probably right. It's to Judah and to Israel, right? To these two different sides of the, of, of the, the breakup, the north and the south. And that's true, but it's not actually the right answer. It's easy for us to think that the law was only meant for Israel since it was only given to Israel. That, that makes sense in one sense. Therefore, it makes sense to us that these prophets, since they are God's people, are the only recipients of these covenant-enforcing words. And so whoever they speak directly to, that's the most important thing. But, but, but you guys know better than that. God's law will reign true for every human being, not just Israel. It's not true. God's law will reign true for every human being, Gentiles and Jews included. They will both be judged for sin, but Israel has been given the promises of God. Again, that's what makes this story so dramatic. You and I, as Gentiles, ought to be on the edge of our seats saying, please don't destroy them. Please don't wipe them off the face of the earth, because we know the promises of Abraham. We know that it's through them that God will bless all the nations. And so as we sit here, we are hoping for this salvation, for this hope that God would be who he says he is. In the prophets, you have this announcement then of all this coming together. The prophets call Israel back to covenant faithfulness, but also reveal that God himself will make this happen as he's promised. He will save Israel and all the nations by supplying all that is needed to fulfill the covenant stipulations. It's astounding. The prophets soar with lofty language of the day of the Lord. Of course, that will be coming and will be fulfilled by Yahweh and his, his Messiah. We talk about the day of the Lord. If you watch every different instance, it's both judgment and destruction and hope and glory and salvation. In this day, in the day of the Lord, there will no longer be Israel only who comes to Mount Zion, but all nations will flow. It's in the prophets that we learn that exile isn't the end. The promises of God to Adam, Abraham, David are at stake here. And so God has promised that he will not break these promises. And so the promise that we find in the prophets is that Israel will return to the land. There will be a new exodus, a new creation, a new covenant. There will be the pouring out of the Spirit on his people. And he will be aiding them to gladly submit to him as king. There will be a new temple. And get this, 
even a new David, a new king from the line of David. How in the world will God do this? Like I said, the prophets put all the puzzle pieces out on the table, and it's up to us to try to figure out how these things all go together. How is he going to accomplish? He promises these things. How in the world will we possibly do it? And it isn't until we meet Jesus of Nazareth, who was born and lives and dies and resurrects from the dead, that we realize who these prophets have been talking about. Don't get me wrong. I don't know if they knew it was Jesus of Nazareth. I'm just trying to say that's who they were talking about because they heard the revelation from God, and that's who he was talking about. That he will be the Davidic king that was promised, and that through him alone there would be salvation, not only for Israel, but for all nations. The prophets then are full of judgment and salvation. And so they call us to two things. They call us to repent of our sin, and they call us to hope in our covenant Lord Jesus Christ. I would assume this is exactly what you and I need. We need to repent of our sin. We need to hope in our Lord. It is the thing that draws us back to the covenant relationship over and over again that we now have the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And especially as Gentiles who have now been folded in by God's grace, we recognize that it was through Jesus and Jesus alone. So I think it's right for me to tell you, repent of your sin. Hope in God. Make this a regular thing as we look to the prophets and we find our hope in him. I call you then to read and know God's law, to repent and find forgiveness in Christ alone, and I call you to hope, to hope in God of salvation who is even able to overcome the unfaithfulness of us, his people. I want to read one section of Scripture and I'll be done. It's the first one I read. Deuteronomy 4, 30-31. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Hallelujah, this is our God. Let's pray together. God, you are kind and merciful, full of steadfast love and grace. Lord, you will by no means clear the guilty. We remember this passage from Exodus 34, 6, because it is so true. We see you do it over and over and over again, where you're kind and gracious and merciful. And yet, Lord, you will destroy those who do not submit to you as king. God, would you please give us hearts that love you? Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm hit outside the head of my sin, and I realize that it's against you in the covenant. I, I, I pray that you would teach us to repent then. Not to just confess and say it, but Lord, would you take our hearts and turn us from our wickedness so that we might walk in righteousness. We know that we can only do this through Christ, and so we ask for your help. And we thank you that there is hope in you today. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to obey and glorify you in the midst of our time here that we have, 70 or 80 years, where we live for the glory of God alone. In Jesus' name.